Welcome to Sarah in Tech. I'm Sarah. Today I'm going to be interviewing Matt Boucher, which is one of my good college friends from like forever ago. Yeah, we graduated almost a decade ago. Oh god, we're old. We are. It's uh, scary. I think next fall will be our tenure. Are we having a reunion? I have no idea. Do colleges have reunions? Some of them do. They'll it's less of the formal reunion. They'll just put out like a memo for homecoming saying, hey, if you were from this class, it's your 10 year, we'll have a tent up or something. And I might go up for the day for just see the house, go to probably the PK and that's about it. Because even most of the professors we had, a lot of them are retired now. Or they moved on to bigger schools because that was like, you know, the takeoff of their career. I remember Calhoun, I bet he totally isn't there anymore. And it was oh, just like yeah. the first year or two after he <laughs> got out and he was just like, I need a professorship and I need one now. He is, he was such a nice guy. I know, he taught genetics, totally love genetics. Not a, it's totally a dinner table conversation at my house, like all the time. Genetics, genetics, genetics. Oh my God, I was so bad there. <laughs> I understood everything, but I did not put any of the work in. Even the fly lab, I, I remember, made up 95% of my data. I, I remember I was like actively genetically selecting my flies and I remember that you weren't and I was kind of miffed. He kind of started, I think he, after that year, he started actually monitoring people's experiments a little bit more for good reason. I was doing, um, I remember I was doing internal research and I had like access to all this additional equipment. So I started utilizing it for my flies too and then I included it in my report. I think that report was the only reason I passed because I was doing awful in the exams. Do you remember he had us do a paper on uh, just some genetic disorder? There was one of the assignments. I don't know if we took it at the same. Did we take it? Yeah, it, we did. We and, had the same lab, and he had like two class sections. Okay, we had to do some paper on a genetic disorder, and I chose leprechaunism because I thought it sounded amusing, and it was a very, it's very depressing disease. There's nothing amusing about it. There's no golds and rainbows. Sadly, and... no. They named it uh, poorly, but I uh, printed the paper out in normal black ink, and then another one in green ink, went up to Dr. Calhoun and said, do you have a dark sense of humor? He said, yes, I gave him the green one. I think I got a B plus on that. <laughs> so I don't know if that helped me or not, but I will take it. <laughs> it, it. It was a very, very sad disease. Most people with it don't make it past about seven. Oh, whoa. Which, yeah, there's not, not much sad. I was expecting it like just people being short. That's, that's yeah, it's, it's a, if I remember right, and I could be very wrong. It's been over a decade, but it was basically your, yeah, a lot of your growth is stunted, but it's less of not just your, your height and everything like that. I mean, it's just all your development stunted. And again, I could be very wrong about that. It's been a long time. And college, there was a bit of boozing involved. What? We drink? A little bit. And post-college and last weekend. <laughs> Have you stopped drinking beer is the real question no. here. No. No, but uh, this next week and a half there'll be less because Caitlin's parents don't drink. <laughs> Is there a religious reason or they're just the type um, of people that don't drink? Her dad was never much of a big drinker and then her mom, uh, her mom's family, there was some alcoholism in the family so she never really got into it. So I think that he doesn't drink to more just out of respect for, you know, her situation and it makes sense, you know, people with alcoholics in the family tend to either become alcoholics themselves or just completely avoid it. It's kind of hard to mitigate it. Well, isn't it like a certain level of genetics associated with like being an alcoholic or not? Yeah, as far as I understand, that's what it is. It's 
and that's a that's a lot. I mean, even even knowing that you would have the susceptible or be susceptible to that addiction makes it scarier to even think about it, right? You know, I didn't. I even remember taking uh, the Vicodin they gave me for my wisdom teeth and being like, I know people who like I hear stories all the time of people getting addicted to this. So I wanted to. I just limited my use of it. Mm-hmm. Just dealt with some of the pains. It's like I don't want to be addicted to Vicodin. I mean, I got all four of my wisdom teeth out, and I didn't take any Vicodin. I had a full pill bottle, and then I'm pretty sure I threw it out. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah. I took about two to three days worth, and then I went just to Motrin. So, and it was not pleasant, but. <laughs> I actually didn't feel any pain, so I don't know if I'm just weird and don't feel pain. Enjoy that. Pain sucks. <laughs> I'm so told sometimes. My my legs are in pain most of the time, so. How um how far do you normally run every day? I know you're a distance runner. Uh, every day I do at least one mile running. Um, average is about twenty to thirty miles a week running. Uh, biking. Uh, right now I'm going over a hundred miles a week on the bike, and then maybe two in the water. Do you have ambitions outside of just doing a bunch of triathlons for fun? Uh, no, I just want to do the one full Ironman, uh, get the tattoo for it, and then uh, and then kind of go back to sprints and just see if I can get faster a little bit. Uh, I don't think I'll ever get back to you know college form, but it'll be nice just to see if I can get myself uh, a little bit closer to the podium in these races. Unfortunately, 30 to 34 is a very competitive age group. It's the, the age where people either don't have kids or they don't have kids or they, if their kids are young enough or they can still train a lot. And have a little bit of disposable income some time and can really put it some some time and uh, effort into it versus you know the 40-45s people usually have kids or their bodies are starting to break down a little bit more and it, the field spreads out a little bit. I um, recently uh, had a coworker that was uh, what do you call it Adidas pays them money. To oh train. sponsored. Yeah so they were a sponsored runner and so I got to hear a lot about it I'm used to, my mom taught figure skating, so I'm used to like, pinnacle of your career is like 18 to 25, and after that you basically don't have any more, um, if you're going to pinnacle. And it was so unusual to me to find out like, running's pinnacle is in your mid to late 30s, I was like... Yeah, distance athletes especially, it's that, yeah, that mid 30s range is usually where they peak. And I, I don't know what it is, it must just be something about that you're not... You know, you're not going all out. You're, you're trying to, you got to build everything and kind of get yourself there. One of my buddies, he just moved out to Colorado with hopes of training to go for the Olympic marathon, and he's 32. I think his goal is the trials. I don't know. I mean, he'd have to give it everything to, to really have a real shot. But, I, you know, he's gone under two and a half hours. I'd have to look back and see what he's done. So he's not terribly far off, but the faster you get, you know, that 30 seconds is a huge window compared to my four and a half hours at 30 seconds is not as big of a window. But as far as I know, he rolled his ankle pretty bad moving out there, so he might get delayed in his training. Oh gosh. Yeah. It is a little, I don't know if that's ironic, but it's a little comedic that he moves out there to do all his training and then hurts himself in the moving process. Obviously sad, but since he's a guy that I've known since high school, I will laugh at him a little bit for it. Well, I'm sure his rolled ankle will heal and he will return to training. Yeah. Yeah, he's not going to let that stop him. When did you discover your love for athleticism and running? Um, honestly, it was probably high school, late high school. Um, 
I played baseball all my life growing up. Was not uh, not much of a runner, not really an athlete. I do a lot of hiking and that. And then sophomore year, I didn't make the baseball team. So I, uh, my dad basically said, you're either getting a job or you're going out for another sports team. So I chose track. Uh, I tried sprints for one day, and then I went to distance because I thought it was going to be easier. You're sadistic, aren't you? <sighs> Something like that. <laughs> I, and then I, I, at that time, I couldn't run a mile. Could not run two laps around the track without really needing to stop. Was running in tennis shoes, you know, doing everything wrong. Uh, by the end of the year, I think I broke six minutes for the mile, and I was ecstatic, which I would actually be ecstatic to do that again now. <laughs> Uh, and then I went out for cross country the next year, kept going. Uh, senior year of high school, I got a job at Running Fit, a local shoe company here. That's when I will plug, they're awesome. Uh, <laughs> I think I actually bought all of my running shoes when I was doing distance running from Running Fit. They like look at your gait and everything and say which yep. shoe you should buy. Yep, and so that's what I did. I helped people find their running shoes and that was, you got to talk to a lot of people too and listen, hear their stories of why they were running, you know, either to get in shape People wanted to become police officers, so they had to be able to do two miles in 20 minutes or something like that. Like, you know, there were requirements. Or you got the high school athletes, the college athletes, someone who's just running their first 5K, someone who's on their 50th marathon and is running and just they know exactly what shoe they want. They tell you, hey, I need this Asics shoe, and they're out the door. You get a lot of the stories. And technically, I could say I was a sponsored athlete because there were days where I could go and clock in and do a run. It was a group run with people like to help bring people into the store, but I did get paid to actually work out. <laughs> I can never say that I've been paid to work out. Unless you count chasing kids on ice skates. So it kind of counts. But so that, there was a lot of that. I got to do a little bit of coaching actually with that. Um, they used to do classes, you know, like your first 5K, kind of a couch to 5K, but with a group and uh, someone who'd done a bunch of marathons teach, you know, work, helping you through it. And then the next year, they did a, uh, they would do another class running 201 was this one. And the goal was to teach people kind of how to try to go faster. You know, hey, you've done your first 5K. You were 40 minutes. That's great. Let's see if we can get you down to 39, 38. You know, we'll teach you ways that we can try to work and speeding you up. So I, I was an assistant coach for that class, and it was that was a lot of fun because, again, these, these weren't people who were, you know, top-level athletes or anything like that. They were just people who wanted to get better. So then uh, when the graduation for this one was a 5K, and you know, we, we ran the 5K with them, and I ran it with uh, this young woman, crossed the finish line, ran back, found her mother, and ran in with her mother just to make sure, you know, because that was also part of the goal. We had three coaches, so each coach would run with one of the athletes. You finish, you run back, and you find another athlete and run in with them. And that was, it was a lot of fun, and it's, because not everyone's going to be an Olympic-level athlete, but there's no reason that you shouldn't not run because you're like, well, I'm never going to run a 15-minute 5K. Well, who cares? You know, go out, have fun. It's good for you a little bit, and if you, if you only run one day a week, you only run one day a week, but it's better for you than nothing. So that was, it was just a lot of fun to do that. And then uh, post-college, I did fall out of it a little bit couple years I uh, had some injuries from college and just decided it was too much work and then a, a couple years ago we got back into it through the triathlon through uh, actually another Alma grad from from the 90s Tim Nestor <laughs> but he lived in Lansing and he, we would talk and he got me back doing a triathlon and they had a running group in Lansing that they would run a 5k on Monday nights and then go to the bar 
And I was 23, 24, and I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> what, Monday night going to the bar? I'm always in. <clears throat> does Caitlin run with you? She does. Uh, she doesn't, <clears throat> sorry. She doesn't run as much. She doesn't enjoy it the same way I do, but she's running to keep in shape. Uh, this year, she started doing uh, every day at least a mile. So between either doing a mile with me, doing a long run on her own, or doing her uh, high-intensity interval classes, which do involve about a mile's worth of running. She's made it the entire year so far. Wow. Over 200 days. That's really impressive. That's yeah. 200 miles. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, and then she's, we're both signed up for the Detroit Half Marathon. We were hoping to do the international one, but that's now canceled. COVID won't let you cross the bridge and come back. But it is what it is. But at least we get to hang out with people we know and not wear masks. That is always nice. The, uh, the pandemic was rough for a lot of people. And I, don't, I did okay for it, mostly because um, I can be fairly introverted, so being able to lock myself inside and avoid people. And then the nice thing actually just with work, being in a lab, we were really the only people allowed in the building. So, you know, your customer service, your salespeople, uh, your finance people and all that, they were working from home. So it was your lab staff in the building and a few upper management people, which is just nice because it's like, it's quiet. And they got rid of our no headphones in the lab rule for that part of the time, which was just nice because then I could work in the lab and, again, ignore all the people who were still there. And it was being polite <clears throat> because you're not supposed to interact with them because of COVID. Yep. But we were then, for most of uh, last year, we were only in two to three days a week. And starting this year, they basically had the lab in five days a week, which... Has that been rough, going back to full-time? Not really. Uh, the only part that's getting rough is now they want everyone. They want the building at fifty percent capacity for uh, for so everyone is in two days a week, um, which isn't. It's not a bad thing. Like, I mean, I got my shots. I'm fine. I'm not. I was never too worried about COVID, but I was more worried that if I got it, and spread it to someone else. That was my thing. But just the amount of noise that's come back to the building is a little unfortunate. <laughs> I mean, I enjoyed going into the office when no one else was there because no one was coming in and everyone had the option to stay home. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, time to come back to the office. And I'm like, I can't get anything done. Everyone's talking. Why are Nerf guns going off over my head? <laughs> I did. So there was a time where uh, things kind of got slow for me because there were, you know, I'd run out of raw materials and I'd have to order them from somewhere else. So there wasn't a lot I could do lab-wise. So during the, the COVID months being at home, I had ordered a remote control helicopter with the goal of, I was working in the basement and Caitlin was working upstairs. So my goal was to try to learn to fly it up the stairs and just annoy her from a distance. I was not successful at getting it to fly well enough. The camera didn't work great, the controls weren't tight, and the dog wanted to attack it. <laughs> have you tried like pushing it out the window and having it go up the window outside? I didn't try it there. Um, I don't know if it would have worked that well in that apartment, but in the house it probably might work better now. But now uh, I'm back in full time, so I can't. And it doesn't fly that well outside. You know, I probably would have had to go up to like a hundred bucks for that helicopter, not forty. You buy the cheap toys, you get the cheap toy. You buy a more expensive toy, okay, maybe it'll be a little nicer. But there's no guarantee you'll actually use it if you buy the expensive one, so I always start out with the cheap one. Yeah, we actually took it up north uh, 
last year. I can't remember which weekend we were up at my parents' cabin, and I brought it out, and my cousin's kid started crying, thinking it was going to fall into the lake, which I couldn't even get it out over the water. It got close to the water, and the wind just came up and took it. Oh, wow. I've seen, like, a lot of the drones are really intense now, and you can do a lot of cool things where you organize all. Have you seen those yeah. light shows? They had one actually for the Olympics where the drones were flying around to be in the globe and then in different that's, that's really awesome. artistic shapes. And they do it at um, Walt Disney World too. Oh, they do? Mm-hmm. I have a buddy that he's got a drone and uh, a couple years ago, so actually when Ian Kurth got engaged, mm-hmm. um, they were, him and his uh, wife now were driving around on their boat. So our buddy Kirk got his drone, and he's got a pretty nice one. He flew it out over the water, and the goal was for the drone to capture the footage of the proposal. So what Ian did is he had his wife uh, start driving the boat, and she saw the drone and decided, I don't want to be anywhere near the drone. So just starts driving, trying to get far away from the drone. The and the time. drone's chasing them. Yeah, well, Ian's like, okay, I need you to stop at some point so I can do this. And eventually, eventually it worked, but it was a pretty fun moment. And then... Actually, the, there was the story, I don't know if you heard about it, the Michigan uh, Eagle, the Energy Environment Great Lakes and Energy, the state government division, they had a drone get attacked by a bald eagle up north. I don't think I heard that story. So an eagle took down an eagle drone. They did end up recovering it. I'm sure the eagle was just protecting its territory. Yeah, just saw something flying and went, nope, you don't belong here. <laughs> so Which, drones are pretty cool. Yeah. We have a drone actually for one of our manufacturing plants. They have a drone because they've put some of their storage racks too close together to look up into them. So they've got a drone to fly up and look for raw materials on their shelves. It may have gotten stuck. The drone? <laughs> yeah, so they had to buy another drone to try to get the drone. How did they go up and get the raw materials though? Because don't they use like a ladder or something? Typically, they'll. So most plants, at least the ones I've been to, they'll, their racks will be far enough apart. You drive a forklift or a high wheel, which are different. I don't know how, but they are different. I mean, <clears throat> my grandpa used to drive a high wheel for like Budweiser, I think, or something, but I didn't, never asked him what the difference was. But yeah, so you, you, know, you drive in there, you pull a pallet off. But this facility was in a little bit of, uh, well, they, were, they had some issues with storage. Some of the racks got too close together to drive into it, so they wanted to find another way to see if they had something. What you think, because that's a facility, they cycle through their materials very quick, so there wouldn't be a lot of chances for them to lose something. I'm not very involved with that facility, but I get a lot of those stories secondhand. <laughs> so, you have a love of robotic flying small implements. They are fun. <laughs> How did you get from, like, Golly G technology is cool too. I love drones and chemistry is awesome and I love being in the lab. That's the real, like, when did the love of technology start? So, I mean, going into college, I wanted to originally go into forensic science. That was kind of what I wanted to do. And probably like most people who decide they want to go into forensic science, they fell in love with the TV show CSI. Or in my case, Bones. Yeah, but same thing. Yeah, same show, same show, different people. Slightly different methodology, but the uh, then my junior year, uh, the summer between junior and senior year, I was fortunate enough that uh, one of our fraternity alumni worked for the state department, or not the state department, the state crime lab for mm-hmm. Michigan, and I managed to get a, uh, we'll call it loosely an internship with them. It was kind of more of I got to observe them once a week for the summer. That's still pretty cool. It, it was very cool. I got to see, you know, 
the, the drug lab, I spent quite a lot of time in the drug lab, seeing bags of marijuana taller than the ceiling here, a bag of cocaine worth about $22,000. Um, so it was like this big? <laughs> it was a big freezer bag, but they were all packaged like that. Um, then, you know, I, I got to see a little bit of their materials anal analysts, analysis lab. Um, there were a couple other places I got to see. I got to go see a, an autopsy one day. I would not recommend going to an autopsy. It does not smell nice. Did you know we had a cadaver lab at Elma? I did. I never went into it. I, I never wanted to. No. That was one of those moments I was like, maybe this isn't for me. <laughs> Um, and then I also I got to go to the firearms lab too for a little bit, which was pretty fun because uh, I got to shoot a machine gun into a pool of water. So not as much fun as actually shooting a machine gun elsewhere, but so I got to shoot a machine gun, so technically. And then you know you got to see them take the bullet and try to line it up. And, but part of the reason I thought I, I thought I wanted to go into forensics was I didn't want to do the same thing every day. I didn't want some kind of monotony to what I wanted to do. And throughout the internship, I, I realized fairly quickly that basically you get put into a department and you're, you know, the guy who's testing the cocaine, he's testing cocaine every day to prove it's cocaine, writing a report, and then he has to, you know, then I'll have to go testify. Now the well. real question is, is how does he test cocaine? <laughs> he does not test it that way, but I did learn, you know why they test it that way? So the, they put the cocaine and then they put it in your mouth? Uh, it'll numb your mouth. Oh. If you do that, so really pure cocaine will numb your mouth, which is actually now why one of the top things they'll use to cut cocaine, at least this is what I was told at the time, was Novocaine, because Novocaine will also numb. So it'll trick you to think, oh, this is really good cocaine, when in fact it's cut. Um, and there were some, there were some other interesting things. He was of the opinion, one of the guys I worked with, that marijuana would never be legal federally. We'll see where that is in the next few years. What states other than Idaho have it illegal still? Do you know? Idaho's the only one I can think of that it's illegal in. There's 20 some of them. I think oh. it's, it's almost half. It's, le it's, it's legal in Montana and Wyoming. Let's just that give you yeah, some but perspective. they're never going to enforce anything like that in Wyoming. It's too spread out. But like it's legal. Like you can go purchase some weed in Wyoming. Like, you can do that in Michigan too. I know, but like Idaho is completely surrounded by states where it's legal, and Idaho's like, "Yep, it's gonna still be illegal here." I'm like, you keep saying that. It, it, <laughs> it's gonna eventually become federally legal, and but it's just it's a more of a when, not if kind of thing, and people can fight it all they want, and they will. My biggest problem with it is just that like there's all these people who are in jail and it ruined their lives and after it becomes federally legal, can we wipe the record? Can they be 100 released? Hundred percent on board with that. With giving that's, them that's some my kind biggest payment. Like just because like you know this this sucked and I'm not a politician. I'm not good with that stuff. I'm never gonna have that full solution on my own. But yeah, they need to be wiped. The records at minimum need to be wiped clean. They need to be free for it. And. My biggest worry too is that I don't know if there's a test out there to really know if it's if you're driving while high. Oh right? yeah. Like the DUI. How much does it? Is, it's not perfect, but it's at least relatively accurate. What are they doing in like Michigan? I, I don't know on that. I just know you have to be 21 to buy it. Um, most of the people I know who who partake use gummies as their form, and most of them don't drive after. You know they'll. 
they go get their Taco Bell first or they'll order food. To, everything you can get delivery now. So know. it's, you know, if you have that and you really need food, it's fairly easy. Um, no, but it, it's nice that it is at least getting some kind of legalization. But so throughout that summer, I decided I really didn't care um, too much for that. It just felt like it was going to be too repetitive. Um, so I kind of I left college not really knowing what I wanted to do. Uh, but after studying math and chemistry, I was I, I went more towards the chemistry side looking for work because again I didn't know what was really out there, and I felt the chemi chemistry skill was a little bit more marketable. Outside of teaching people math, I didn't know what else you could really do with it. And I'm a little convinced that my boss actually chose to hire me because I had a math degree as well. He, a lot of people in the company come to me with just simple calculations. And I will tell everyone who's listening to this, proportions, people do not understand proportions, know them. They are not hard, but you will impress everyone with it. I, I, a lot of the things that we do, um, we do two, I do two component epoxy polyurethane uh, systems, and so they'll have a mix ratio, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's 100 to 100, which is nice and easy, or 100 to 50, or even, you know, we'll get 100 to 16. And people will say, well, what if I only want to mix up 100 pounds? And they won't, they won't understand that they can take that 100 to 16, and there's a simple calculation to tell you how much of each side. I feel like I learned that in eighth grade. Yeah, it, well, that's why I'm kind of saying it's, it's not a hard thing to know, but people, I mean, you grow up your whole life, and how many people do you remember growing up who are like, I'm not good at math. I hate math. We literally talked about this on the last episode. It's the only subject where people can just say, I'm not good at math, and then it's like acceptable. But no one ever says, I'm not good at English, or I'm not good at. Well, I make that joke like I'm like I barely speak English and it's my first language. Um, that, that's, but that's, like, what, that's what drove me to math was that I, I was never good at writing. I was never good at I didn't understand all the rules of grammar. You know, uh, I still don't know what an Oxford comma is, and I refuse to learn at this point. But stuff like that, you know, I was bad at like the the rules of grammar felt a lot more subjective to me. And math. Like I before E, except after C, except in these cases. Exactly. And then you're like, so welcome if, to the English language. Is it confusing? So I'm not learning rules in English. I'm trying to memorize a language versus in math. You learn, you know, you learn a set of, I mean, in, in geometry, right? There's five main rules of geometry. Mm -hmm. and you can build everything else off of it, which for me was like, great. I don't need to know a lot. I just need to be able to work through stuff. Uh, you learn a few facts and you just learn to apply it somewhere else. And that's what I, that's what drove me to math. And I think that's why I was good you at learn math. You're learning a lot. Yeah. Because they're universally. Yeah. And then you take a cl one class in college where they decide to take one of those rules of geometry, cross it off the list, and see what happens. And all of a sudden, rectangles don't exist. <laughs> Best class ever. What class is that? That was uh, college geometry. It was Dr. Putz taught that one. It was um, non-Euclidean geometry. So... I don't feel like I took that. It was a 400 level. I took a junior year with, uh, it was Dr. Putz. I can't even remember who else was in that class. But it was just one of those where... I was only in one class with you, and that was linear algebra. Oh, God, that's awful. <laughs> I had to watch the MIT lecture videos in order to get through that class, because the instructor just missed stuff and then expected you to know it for the exam. Yeah. 
that helped that I was retaking it as exams. Basically, he changed the numbers in it, not what the questions were. The so concepts. Could, yeah. Help me piece my way through it the second time. And I'm not good with computers, and that linear algebra is a very computer-oriented class. The matrices, they have a lot of at least applications, I believe, to the computer world. That was the first time I programmed in R. <laughs> the, uh, but yeah, the college geometry, that was a fun one for me because it was kind of one of those those what-ifs, right, where people will do that for history classes, right? Mm -hmm. What if the American Revolution never happened? What would the world look like? What if, a bad thing, what if the United States actually won in Vietnam? What if Canada was actually the superpower of the world? Like, these things, like, what would happen? And then math, again, a lot of the sciences, you don't get that because what if gravity didn't exist doesn't make sense as a question for a lot of things. You can think about it, but you're not going to spend too much time on, okay, we'll float to the surface and we're all dead, it's over. Um, but this one we managed to, you know, we took one rule out of the five postulates of geometry and said, we're going to assume it's not true. And then everything else branched from there. And there was just a lot of things. Triangles had more than 180 degrees. It was one of the repercussions of this. Sounds like an interdimensional triangle. Yeah, kind of. I mean, there's there's forms of geometry that you can, like, you draw on a sphere. So you make the sphere essentially your plane of existence. And if you draw a triangle from the top of the sphere, basically like the North Pole, down to the equator where you hit it at a 90-degree angle, and back, you now have a triangle that has three 90-degree angles. You have a 270-degree triangle. Mm -hmm. It's not something we see because we do geometry uh, in a plane. It's like, uh, what do you call it, like polar coordinates or something like that too, right? I believe so. It's been, it's been a while since yeah. I've looked at that. The, uh, but this no, isn't what, what this I do is, every day. <laughs> but it, it's getting more into like, is space as a whole, is it planar or is it curved? Where on the small area where we live, rectangles might technically exist because we can't measure how far off they are. Mm -hmm. but when you get into the scale of the solar system, the universe as a whole, those little variants that from that 90 degrees can finally be measured and maybe it's no longer there. And it was, to me, it was one of the more interesting classes I took. It was more theoretical than I'm used to. You took a little bit more physics than I did, didn't you? I mean, I just took one full year of physics, I think. Okay. Um, I took biology and then I took like all the stats classes. And then I was like, I really love this statistics stuff. and. Now I do it every day. I wish I would have taken more statistics. I took AP stats in high school and never went back to it because I was in math education, so I didn't have to take the stats class for a math major. And I keep thinking back to it going, man, I wish I really remembered like, what p-values and all these things meant where I can kind of understand it. Like I know what a standard deviation is mm -hmm. still, but that's used everywhere, but not every of these other stat things that are very useful. They're not used in your day-to-day -day life. so. It's harder to, to remember. And I'm kind of like an anomaly because what I do is data science, and most data scientists are computer scientists. And so I bring stats in, and I'm just different. Not always better different. Some people get angry <laughs> about it, but I'm different. <laughs> oh, my favorite fantasy football analysts love stats. And they, they literally, every single one of them, there's actually a competition every year, and I can't remember what it's called. But they, they get these groups of people to try to analyze football statistics and try mm -hmm. to come up with a new metric. So there's like um, the yards expected per carry. Or in like, so your player, like based on how the rest of the team performs, you'd expect them to be at two yards per carry. 
but because of this metric, you notice that they're getting four yards per carry, so they have two yards more per carry than expected. And so if you put everyone out on the field and you know that each person that's on the field normally gets about five yards per carry or something like that, then you would expect the ball to go that far. And then you have an expected value for the individuals on the field. Yeah, so, you, so based on how, what cool. the team is that they're on, you can kind of analyze like, okay, is it this player doing this or is it the team that's doing this? Because if they're getting a lot of more yards than you'd expect, they're doing something special. If they're mm -hmm. getting less, then, or they're getting right at that level, it's, there, there's a lot of factors to it. I don't, I don't usually pay too much attention to that one. I, I don't do great at fantasy football, but I also overthink it. Where I'm, I'm, fantasy football is one of those games of you got to be the one going against the grain a little bit, and then if you think you know what you're doing, you start getting cute, and then you just do everything wrong because you think you you think you know what you're doing. It's kind of like gambling. You play poker or blackjack. You can play the numbers, and you can kind of come out ahead if you do it right. Mm -hmm. But if you get cocky and you start thinking, well, I can beat the numbers, that's when you lose. I've experienced it. <laughs> I just always have the attitude, because it's always in favor of the house, otherwise the gambling casinos wouldn't stay open. So I always just have the attitude of this is for entertainment. Do not expect to win anything as a result of what you're doing because that's the right way to go about it it's like i'll spend thirty dollars on a movie i'll spend thirty dollars at a gambling table should entertain me yeah and if you happen to walk away with 40 you're happy if you walk away with a zero out of that 30 you're happy you, you got your entertainment but uh i definitely bet on stocks and i always win <laughs> with stocks at least all right uh, you buy a stock and if it loses some value you still have that stock mm -hmm. If you bet $5 on a blackjack hand and you lose it, you don't have anything. The stock can go down and you can be upside down on it, but usually if you leave it long enough in a stock, it'll come back up. Yeah. As long as it's, you know, a stable company. I can't remember who it was quoted, but I saw someone quote that the stock market's a way from transferring money from the inpatient to the patient. Hmm? So basically, it's, it's if, if you're willing to wait on stocks, you can make more money. Mm -hmm. So basically, if you're not patient and you sell because something dropped a little bit, you're, that's where you lose your money versus the person who sits and holds for a little bit longer. This is probably someone who's also putting millions into the stock market versus my 30 bucks a month. Yeah, I mean, I'm nowhere near millions. I just, you know. It would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, but, you know, maybe when we're like 60 or 70, we'll be millionaires. And a million dollars would be worth about a gallon of milk. Probably, at the way inflation's going, maybe we could buy a whole, have our whole house paid off. Oh, dreams. <laughs> I mean, as a millennial, owning a house is like it's as a, a feat. Yeah, it is. And most of us buy houses because we get pets. <laughs> the pet needs a backyard. Yeah. And if there happens to be a child, there it is what it is. <laughs> I have both a pet and a child, so. Just definitely needed that backyard to go with them. <laughs> so yeah, with um, but yeah, I got hired into a, a smaller chemical company mm -hmm. back in 2012, and at, working for a smaller chemical company was kind of nice, uh, especially for learning what the industry is like. You have to wear multiple hats. So I was doing R&D. I was also assisting with quality control mm -hmm. from time to time um, when. My, if I had a product that we were ready to sample to a customer, I would either make the sample or I would go out to production and actually watch them make it. Um, 
So a lot of it was more of you're taking notes because you're going to write the procedure. And again, a smaller company, it's not that there's someone out there that can say, hey, here, this is done. You write this procedure. We didn't have a processing engineer. It was the chemist. There was three of us in the lab. Mm -hmm. And you'd go out there and you'd watch them take notes. And one of the things that I learned very quickly is there's these quality standards that everyone has to meet to do certain business, right? And this one was, you know, it, it's essentially you have to do what you say you're going to do. Mm -hmm. So if I write a procedure saying you need to mix this batch for 30 minutes, then they need to mix it for 30 minutes. So what we kind of realized, and most people in the industry probably know, is that instead of me writing you do this for 30 minutes, I go out there and watch them mix it and say, how long do you think you need to mix this to get this there? And if they say 15, I'll write it for 15. Okay. So you just want to make sure you're writing everything to what they're actually going to do on the production floor. Okay. Like everyone, we all try to cut corners where we can. So if I realize that I don't have to mix this thing for 30 minutes, I can get away with 15. That saves me 15 minutes where I can do something else or at least get this moving. So why would you put something in, like, why would the production floor and you be making the same thing? It would be more of that. I would, I would go out there and observe them make this stuff for the first time at a production level. Okay. And that's where I would write down and take notes on how they actually want to make it. I would write the way that I think it should be made. Mm -hmm. But I, especially when I first started, I'd been there for three, six months, you know. I'd only gone out on the production floor for a few times. So when I say, I want you to add these five ingredients in this order, and this guy who's been doing this for 20 years comes up and goes, I think it'll move better if I flip these two around in the order. And you can ask them why. And sometimes it's just uh, it gets more volume into the into the mixer before I add a powder or something like that. It makes it easier to disperse it. And sometimes it's more of well, I think I can add these all on the scale on the big scale before I put it under the mixer. Because mm -hmm. there's a lot of different ways that they can, there's a lot of different ways to make the batches, and you just want to find the most efficient. And typically, the person doing it for 20 years is going to have a good idea versus six months. We call those subject matter experts usually. They're yeah. just like, I'm just here to build the model. You tell me how how you it do your thing. and Yeah, so it, it was nice uh, working out there because really nice because, again, I, there's a di different language that a chemist is going to speak versus the production guy versus mm -hmm. even the quality control guy or the sales guy. And just everyone, we all speak a different language even mm -hmm. e e just because that's just how you, you're trained to talk. Um, and you get to know them and you trust you trust the people you're working with to a certain level. And if you don't trust them, you know kind of who you have to kind of just get on a little bit more about certain things. So we would do we would do a lot of different kind of batches. So we do ground floor development. So someone gives us an idea and we start from nothing. We would do formulation and modification. So someone would come up and say, this customer loves this product. They need it to be. Uh, they need it to cure slower. They need it to cure faster. So when you say like loves this product, you mean like cement or like the base of a shoe or those some of like the type of items that you work with? Are you allowed to say? You can <laughs> also I, say. I think I am. Um, okay. We do two component epoxy, which is going to be a little bit more rigid. Uh, our stuff is tooling based, so mold making. One of our products is a paste that they'll, they'll lay down this paste and they'll take a big CNC machine, they'll machine it down, and then they'll use this mold to make wind blades. 
And the reason to use the paste is because you can make a seamless mold and wind blades are huge, right? So you want to make this just one giant part versus some of our other stuff will resell these polyurethane boards that you can CNC out and you can make a mold, but the mold would only be six by four at most. And if you wanted it bigger than that, you'd have to glue some of these together and you build, and you, then you have seams in them. So people just don't, they don't, if you don't want seams, you go with a different route. Mm -hmm. uh, we do composite resins, so carbon fiber or fiberglass laminating resins. Um, we don't really do pre-pregs, which are, they're carbon fibers you can buy that are already uh, wet out with resin, generally kept cold, and what you'll do is you can take them out in like a sheet that's already done, you, you stick it into your mold, and either you heat it or you expose it just to the elements, and it'll cure it on its own over time. Uh, epoxy adhesives, most of ours aren't uh, structural. Mm -hmm. They're uh, <laughs> so they're, they're just simple, usually adhesives. Um, some of them, some of them are a little tougher than others, but it just depends what the customer needs. Ours, our the house that I was working at, we were kind of um, we're a custom shop, so we'd have we'd have one that was a polyurethane adhesive that would come out of a cartridge, and someone would say. Well, I want this, but I want it more of a walnut wood color. And we would color match it for them if they would buy enough. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just, I mean, we, we just did everything. Your polyurethane casting, um, we're getting into concrete uh, form, not con well, concrete forming. So we don't make the concrete, but we make polyurethane mats or, or tools to just pour the concrete into to get it into whatever shape you want. Mm -hmm. And those have to be a little bit flexible for whatever potential application, whether you're laying concrete down, standing it into a shape, or you're taking this mold, you're pouring the concrete into it, and then getting the concrete out. Um, Sika, the company I work for, actually does do concrete, a lot of concrete. <laughs> my division does not. <laughs> That's cool. Um, yeah, I mean, we, again, we're, we're kind of in everything. We do, uh, we make a laminate resin for race car bodies. That was actually kind of a cool customer to hear about. I got to go out there one year and actually was see it. Was it like Formula One or? This is, I believe they're getting into the NASCAR bodies. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a system we designed because they had to be flame retardant. Mm -hmm. So they had a system they were using mm -hmm. and then they were, well, we needed to be fire retardant to meet some NASCAR spec. and. That, that was uh, it was a difficult project because they didn't want to lose any of their performance properties and things that you add to reduce or to help prevent fire they usually they get in the way of everything else so they do hurt some of your properties so you have to tweak some things in order to get there mm -hmm. I mean that's everything right you know you start with this as your base level and you say I want something new you might have to sacrifice something else there's a balance right to, to all things or you pay more and people don't want to do that. Should be cheaper and better and more of what I want. And, and completely faster. green. Yeah, not bad for the environment. That one's hard. We're trying to get a little bit more into it, but there's a, it's it's either to get green raw materials, it's either expensive or you're going to sacrifice a lot of properties. And some of the products we make, um, there's one uh, specifically, it's a, it's a mold making resin. So this is one it's not anything really special as far as the material, but what it's designed for is to go in your mold between some fiberglass layers to provide some thickness and rigidity to it and also be really lightweight. So it's not doing anything extremely special, but it needs to be able to kind of hold its own. 
and we tried to replace one of the materials with a renewable bamboo. Bamboo is carbon negative, actually, not even carbon neutral. And these shavings, you know, they mix right into the resin fairly easily. And we did the testing, and we realized we were losing between 15 and 20% of our strengths. We also did lose about, we lost a little bit of weight too, mm -hmm. which is nice. Lighter is always better, because if you got to move things around, you know, reducing your fuel consumption and your energy consumption is always a nice feat. So we talked to their sales staff about it, and one of the things they said was like, well, they want it to be where it is. And say, say it was 10,000 PSI was the compression strength, so how much you can push on it. Well, do they need 10,000? No, but they have 10,000 now. It's like, yeah, but if they only need 6,000, I'm giving you eight here and it's green. But that's just, I mean, you're talking it's to people like, that might not fully know what they need from a product. It's like, why are all the cars at the car lot able to go 120 when the fastest speed limit on any public road is 80? Yeah. But then if you were to go look at a car and they said, oh yeah, this car tops out at 80 miles an hour, you might like, not buy it and go, well, my current car, I can hit 100. Yeah, but do you ever go 100? No, but I can. I can. And I think it, a lot of that comes from people, you don't want to max out anything, right? You don't want your phone battery to ever hit zero. So you want to know that, you know, I might charge my phone every night without any worry. My phone will be on a charger at night. But if I'm shopping for a phone and I see one that says three-day battery, that's a big plus on that. Even though I'm never going to go three days of it off the charger. I'm religious about that. I see my charger hit about 60%, or my phone hit about 60%, and I start panicking. <laughs> Which I know is completely ridiculous, but... When it, I mean, mine gets red, so that's when I'm like, alright, time to charge some more. I'm also that person when my gas tank gets just under a quarter I'm looking for a gas station. I, I don't like it when the, the light comes on. I'm back home this week and my parents live in the middle of nowhere and there are no gas stations and so I'm having to remind myself that a quarter of a tank is time to fill up around here whereas back home it's like the nearest gas station is a mile away and you know all of that. I have one literally around the corner from me and it's like Still, it's, it's, I need, I want to, I don't ever want to run out. I don't ever want to strain myself. And I've, that probably comes a little bit from, I went out to Anaheim for work for a convention once for a conference and I went to a ball game that night mm -hmm. and I literally had 3% battery by the time the Uber got me. Oh God. I was sitting there panicking. like, I don't have cash to find a cab. I don't know where my hotel is, like by name and I don't have a phone charger, and I'm in the middle of a city, I don't know. So they make these like little phone batteries that you can like... I, I have some. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> you, you live and let learn, but that was just one of those moments where I was going to have to walk into the local whatever restaurant just ask around and see if someone has a charger and if I can charge, and like, I will buy beer here. Just I need power to find my way home. Usually waitresses do have chargers on them. But Especially if they do long shifts, it's not like they're uh, not like people aren't ever on their phones. <laughs> and it also earns them some extra tips. Well, so you have love of technology. Your job is pretty darn awesome right now. It has its moments for sure. <laughs> There's, I mean, every job has its stress, right? And developing, you know, back when we were a smaller company, uh, there was a little less pressure on each development. 
the nice thing is when you go to a bigger company, you get to get a little bit more specialized, right? I'm doing less quality control work than I was when we were smaller, but now our, our system for doing projects is a little bit more, uh, there's just more to it. There's more uh, paperwork involved. There's more, there's more regulations to follow because the bigger company is going to crack down more on certain things. There's like a set process. So yes. the smaller the companies are, because I've been at startups where there's like 15 people, there's no process when, when you're at the like two or 300 person company, there's like so much process, you have to do this and this. Yeah, yeah, and so I'm, I'm, I'm still learning our current process and it's, it's difficult because for our location, I'm the only chemist for, the, for my group that does this tooling and composites kind of stuff and everyone else in my facility does automotive. Mm -hmm. Michigan is big into automotive. That's Isn't Detroit known for, I don't know, as Motor City? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. The Detroit Pistons, I mean, they're actually named after the car pistons, not horses. And the Red Wings, their symbol is literally a tire. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, we're big into automotive and part of the problem for me learning some of this stuff is the automotive, their projects tend to go on for two, three, four years because mm -hmm. It takes two years to get a product approved. So if you're developing for a year and a half, and then you got to go through the two-year approval, but you're never not working on it. So for me, my projects are a little smaller, so I need to be able to move faster through these steps. But a lot of people haven't gone through the steps in the same way, mm -hmm. or you know, it's been six months since they've gone from one step to another because we have this big system for it. So it's just it's a learning experience and. The nice thing is, though, we with the bigger company, we get a lot more toys to play with. So back uh, in uh, our other facility, I had we had an FTIR, which is used to scan your molecules and kind of get it. It can help you tell you what's in your in your material that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. um, I actually wrote a paper on catalysis. It's like the fourth author. It got published in a journal, so I know a little bit. Tiny itty bitty mouth. I was your TA about for one of the chemistry terms. So. <laughs> you did very well, if I remember. Right. <laughs> yeah, I got told I wasn't allowed to try for uh, extra credit because I was doing too well. Again, one of those situations I think I was being a bit of a joke. <laughs> but I was just trying to find it. It was you as a professor. It doesn't really take. Okay. That one surprised me because that was Dr. Dobke, and he definitely had a he had a goofy side to him as well. Uh, the and then but we have so many more instruments. So we'll have thermal analysis instrumentation. Uh, there's a, a lot of it that I haven't even touched yet because I just haven't had a chance to look even get to it. Um, we bought a new machine a couple years ago that uh, it's it's called a ball rebound tester and it's a very simple machine. It's you cast a chunk of your material about two inches, four inches, and you put it into this thing and you literally drop a ball on it. And then there's a laser that measures how high it bounces up. And depending on what, what you want out of your product, you know, a 40% return could be good or a 0%. Mm -hmm. You know, you, there's materials out there that you want them to take all the energy and not allow anything out for more of like a ballistic application. Or uh, one of these uh, actually stamping mats that I'm working on, we want it to have a good energy return or a good memory to it. Uh, if you're working actually on uh, we don't do polyurethane foams, but a lot of your shoes and stuff like that will be a, a foam. And for a running shoe, you want it to have an energy return. You want, when you're running, you want your foot to strike and you want it to kind of feel it spring you up a little bit. 
You don't, if it took all the energy from you. You would not want to keep running because you would just go boop, boop, boop. It'd be entertaining a little bit. Like, you know, put some of those pro track athletes in cement shoes and just see kind of how they do on us. Those would be good for training, though. I'm sure they'd actually want those for training. <laughs> Maybe a little bit, but there's um there's a whole field out there. Not field, but there's people that think that wearing like ankle, like weighted ankle bracelets and stuff like that can be good for running. Mm-hmm. And everything I've read about it says don't do it. You're doing it. You're going to hurt yourself more than okay. likely than help yourself. But it's also our our human tendency that we see something and go, I think that can work, and go from zero to a hundred instead of going, let's try it for you know, a run around the block first, and then go two blocks, and then work our way up to a mile. Eventually, you know, we go, I can do a mile with five pounds on my ankle, and then it hurts more the next day, and then you're you're done with it. Do you re- you remember the trend of the toe shoes? Oh yeah. They were around college even. I had a couple pairs of them. I love I love them for just normal day wear. I mean, but isn't that good for like the muscles of your feet, or did they find that that's bad now? There were a lot of papers that said it was good, and then I remember a few years ago papers coming out basically saying it was all bogus, which I didn't really read many of them, but most papers like that go way over my head. Um, so there, there's a debate about it, and I think if you do it the right way and you ease yourself into it, there can be benefits. But we saw a lot of people when I sold the running shoes that would just, they'd buy it and they'd go out and run three or four miles the next day in them, and they'd come back and go, I have blisters all over my feet. You know, my ankles are killing, my knees hurt. Well, what'd you do? I bought those shoes and I went running in them. Well, I told you to ease into them. Four miles is not easy. Even if you're but running, I normally go 20 every day. Even if you're running 70 miles a week, four miles is still, you're putting stress on your body. Mm-hmm. And I know that because I ran 70 miles a week quite a bit in college. And it, it's it's a lot on you. It's exhausting. And, you know, you need your chance for your body to recover. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, something that we're not good about is letting ourselves recover. I know I'm, I don't stretch. And that's a running joke in the running community. Of, uh, yeah, they, like, always brag for whatever reason like I'm around a bunch of runners and they're like I can't even touch my toes and I'm like doing weird yoga poses and like tree and eagle (laughs) I've done a few yoga classes they're fun they're uh they're difficult but it's just different than what I'm used to doing I'm used to moving nonstop, and then you tell me all right get into a pose look like you're running and stop what this isn't what I'm trying to do but it strengthens the muscles by holding that yeah so I mean it is good for you it's just different and it's less wear and tear on your body most of my yoga classes involve beer yeah i think like was it you or someone else i know like posted like goats beer and yoga i never did the goat one i was like oh that's interesting i like the beer and yoga i don't know i trust the goats i don't know how yeah anyway animals in general like i know my dog now but when we first got him i didn't trust him with anything (laughs) you you can't (laughs) they don't they don't, uh, they don't respond to everything the same way, you know? I tell my dog, no, you can't have my food. He doesn't understand that. He's just looking at me and going, when are you going to give me the food? He's a goof. <laughs> well, I mean, like, have you ever done yoga near your dog? Usually they're, like, up in your face, and they're like, is something wrong? Can I help you? Are you okay? I haven't as much, but I've seen Caitlin do yoga with the dog, and or she'll, uh, every once in a while, try to do some core work, and the dog just walk up and just sit right over her, and it's like... You're not helping. I know you think you are, but you're not. <laughs> or he'll, you know, you're trying to get his dinner, right? And you go, 
you walk over to the where the food is to go scoop it into the bowl and he'll stand right in front of the door and say, I can't open the door to get your food while you're right there. I know why you're following me because you don't want me to forget about this, but I can't get your food with you right there. But, I mean, certain dogs too, like all pets, right? They, they learn a behavior. They can learn a way to manipulate you in some way. They're going to try it. And then they learn the rules and then that's put the toe over the line. Children, I assume, are the same. Oh, yes. They straight up try to manipulate you. I'm not even going to get into the more recent stories. <laughs> We're in the potty training phase. Doesn't that sound fun? Yeah, I've... You know, there's a lot of moms that share really personal details about their kids, and then, like, I feel like those kids are going to get really upset in, like, a decade when, you know, the story is embarrassing. Um, it's that level of, you know, fun stories, so... I'm not going to put it out on the internet for everyone to hear about my wonderful little girl. Don't <laughs> Don't I mean, I've seen people take pictures of their children next to the potty, and I'm like, and then post it on Facebook, and I'm like, that's too invasive. That's yeah, too that's a little much. It's let your kid have some privacy because especially those are moments they don't really have control over. Like they're starting to develop consciousness at that point. You don't remember much before then. So, but yes, she does try to manipulate me. She knows what she wants, and you know, it's a carrot. You know, like. I guess a safe thing to say is like, you know, she wants a candy. I'm like, well, you have to eat your dinner first. If you're going to get the candy, if you eat dinner, you don't get candy. But it's tantrum time then. It's the best part about being an adult. If I want candy, I get candy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, now that you make your own money, Matt, you can can. have your candy first. And I have a liquor store right around the corner that has candy always. So if I really want candy, it's a two-minute walk. (laughs) One thing about Miss about Michigan is the liquor stores are in inside like the grocery store and the grocery store is 24 hours a day in idaho the liquor store is actually a liquor store and it closes at 8 p.m and i don't even drink that much but i should be able to buy wine at 9 p.m i'm an adult yeah sometimes you don't know you want it until 9 p.m <laughs> anyway so if there is one piece of advice you could give to your younger self say at like 15 now that you're the ripe age of 30? I am. The, what would it be that you would want younger you to know? I would tell myself to just explore a little bit more what's out there. Um, I, I do, I enjoy my work, uh, a lot of it, but I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I kind of jumped on the first opportunity mm-hmm. without really trying to figure out what it was I was going to be doing. Um, I, I never I never really figured out what I wanted to do and I still don't really know. Like again, I like what I do, but it's not it's not what drives me. Mm-hmm. And one of those things out there is that, you know, everyone says what's the phrase? Uh, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life, which is it's not if really you, true, but if you do what you love, you ruin the thing that you love. True, but you know, if if you it's something that really you're really passionate about and you find a way to do it, you know. Um I probably wouldn't have gone into chemistry. I probably would have looked into some way to either do something more in like a physical or like a human kind of physical physical therapy sort of role or something like this, the biomechanics of how humans function and look into more athletic kind of stuff and maybe even a little bit of business actually. Have you seen the field of bioinformatics? No. It's it like statistics me. and biology like had a child. That sounds awesome. 
Yes, it is. Although biology, I, I don't know, I struggled with biology in, in college, and it was just, I, I don't know why it was. It, just, I, it, never, it never grabbed me. Chemistry in college did grab me, but math really didn't grab me. Like math was, math was that one I took those classes out of passion more than, more than any kind of marketable skill. But I, I do wish I would have taken some more business classes actually, because that's just something in the world. No matter what you do, there's there's a use for it. Yeah. And in, in college, I never thought there was. You know, there was classes that I thought it's like, well, why would I ever take this? This is not going to matter to me ever. And I'm in, you know, I'm in a chemical industry field, and I'm required to do even reports with stuff about, you know, our profit margins and that. Mm -hmm. And I can do the math behind it, but I don't understand everything that these the sales staff or the upper management is looking for in it. I see, well, we're making something for a dollar a pound, we're selling it for five. That's great for me, but they might look at it and say, eh, it's not really worth it for us to keep going down this path because we're not selling enough. So there's just factors in there that I don't see in the same way as someone who would have taken some a lot more business courses. I took one econ class and nearly failed it because it was freshman year. And I decided halfway through that I didn't have to go to class anymore. That's another thing I'd probably tell myself is don't skip class. I, I would tell you actively during college not to skip class. You were smarter than me. I misbehaved nights before class, but I would still force myself to go to class the next day and be miserable in spite of my bad behavior as punishment to remind me to behave. Uh, can't say it was terribly effective, but I have my butt in the seat. <laughs> but and then and then I would have probably it would have helped if I would have tried to find um, extracurriculars in college that or done some actual like research studies with professors, especially because mm -hmm. Alma was a, a school where you really could do that. Mm -hmm. And I never reached out to any professors to really do that to try to push myself in a different direction and see what the real like the research level of academia is like. You you never had like a research project. I mean, the only I, reason I had one is because I asked someone, but I thought the professors would just, just pick you. And I never, well, that's kind of what I thought it was, but I, I feel like if I would have started engaging with my professors a little bit more, which it might've, I might've been able to do that. And part of, you know, that's the nice thing about going to a school like Alma is that, you know, you're in a class of 30 kids, you know your professors, you know, and you see the same professors if you're in that subject matter over and over. You're not, like, nameless. I'm friends with about five or six of them on Facebook, which is very weird. I <laughs> ran into Professor Sipka at the mall once after college. You know, like, so you, you, you get to know these professors in a different way. And that's not to take away from the bigger schools, you know. I Actually, I can see the way I went through college. Mm -hmm. If Assuming that I am the same person I am now, if I went to U of M or MSU or Grand Valley or any of these bigger schools, I don't think I would have done well there because I just would have, I really would have stopped going to class. And see, I think I should have probably gone to a big school and I'm kind of like sad people push me to go to a small school because I think a big school would have provided me different challenges. But I mean, looking back on that, giving that advice to yourself, you never know for sure if it would have been good or bad. Well, you, you remember some of the days at Alma's campus. I remember going in as a freshman thinking, wow, the classes are 100 yards away. I'm never going to skip class. This is It's never going to be 
too cold, too rainy. <laughs> I'm never going to feel like too tired to walk 100 yards and go to class. And by sophomore year, by halfway through sophomore year, it's snowing outside, and you look go, do I have to? <laughs> and it's one of those things, I mean, you, you become your environment, right, mm -hmm. to a, some extent. So people in bigger schools, they get used to, I got to know the bus schedule, I got to know how to walk places, I got to time my classes in a way that we didn't have to, because that 10 minutes to go from one building to the next was 50 feet, and you had an overpass over you. And half the time we were spent chatting in the hallway, catching up with people. Yeah, and then your labs, you know, you, they were, again, 20 feet away from your classes. You're, so and you could run to the cafeteria and run back in between class and yeah. lab. But I, I do wish I would have worked a little bit more to talk to some of my professors and get, and I honestly wish I would have taken statistics classes too, because I didn't. And we only had two stats classes in the entire college. One in the math department and one in the bio department. And I took all of them and then I went out and got a master's in it. Like, that some program even let me in on that? It's crazy, but... But you, you did it, and that's, that's, a, that's an amazing thing. I do sometimes wish I would have gone for a master's, but part of my problem was I really didn't know what I wanted to look into. Mm -hmm. And I still theoretically could, but I still don't know what I would want to go into, so... Well, um, the really cool thing is, usually at a company, if you tell them you want to go get a master's degree, and you tell them that you just want to like take night classes, one class a semester, they'll cover the cost usually. And they're more than happy to do that for you. It's yeah. really weird. I know ours does, and that's something I might actually look into post my Ironman in a month and a half, because right now that's taking up an hour to two hours a night, and that's that's rough. I, it's just not something you want to... You can't add to that. Like This is a goal I decided. My hope was last year to do it before turning 30, because mm -hmm. as we all know, you turn 30 and your body falls apart. How's that going for you? Has it fallen apart yet? It's trying to. Oh, okay. COVID happened though, and during that summer I, I injured my quad, and that's oh. still bugging me. I injured, I don't even know exactly what I hurt, but it's right down there. Did you talk to a doctor? I talked to my coach. <laughs> you have a coach? I do. Is it like a personal trainer? or? Kind of. I mean, all our work is uh, via Zoom calls. And mm -hmm. uh, he uh, He's down in Ohio. He's, he's been fantastic though. He, He's just, he's worked with me with the injuries. He kind of understands what's going on. He can't name what my specific injury is. Mm -hmm. And at this point, I'm a month and a half away, and it's like, you know what? I'm going to get through this, and then I'll go see your doctor and let them poke me with stuff and tell me that you're an idiot for doing this and all that. But there's too much money and time to do it. I'm finishing this race. Well, I'm sure you're going to do very well. I hope so. If you I cross the finish, finish line, it, that's all so. I care about. <laughs> yeah, but... That's just uh, one of those things. I mean, I, I got to run in college. That was part of the reason I went to Alma, was just the chance to keep keep training, keep running. It was, you know, it was a it was a passion, but it was one that at the time I was not going to push myself to do. Uh, you know, older and wiser, slightly now, I I pushing myself to run on my own, mm -hmm. which is nice. But not that's everyone. a lot of willpower. Most people don't have it. Yeah. Now I need to after this race put into something else and hopefully get a little bit better at my job too because there's a lot of a lot of the science that we do like the, the chemistry that i'm doing mm -hmm. it's it's finished science right it's epoxy and amine they cure but it's more of I, I jokingly call it i'm a chemical smoothie maker 
you know, someone comes to me and says, well, I need this, this system that does these 10 things. So I don't need to know all the time what each molecule looks like. I don't need to be able to do, you know, from organic, the arrow mechanisms of following the electrons around, because I know the epoxy and amine reaction. But I need to be able to know that, okay, this epoxy has two functional groups, this amine has four functional amines. It's gonna get me a higher, a, a more rigid product, or it's gonna give me a higher TG product, because this resin's a little bit more apt for it. Oh, they need to drive the cost down, I can add this filler product to it that's 30 cents a pound to it, mix it in. It'll drive our cost down and they can handle that it's going to increase the weight, but it might lose some properties. So it's, it's a balancing act, but you know, I don't have to know exactly why strawberry is good for you in a smoothie, but I know it tastes good and it's got some vitamins for you. I'll throw it in the smoothie and you'll like the smoothie. It makes me feel like AI would do that really well. <laughs> we do have a software that uh, they use for some products. Um, it's a DOE pro uh, software, so design of experiment. Um, some of the chemists really like it, some of them don't. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe it's generally the older chemists really seem to hate it. Uh, it works better for the automotive side of things because their products they're typically one component system, so it's an epoxy resin where your curative is in there, mm -hmm. and you'll apply it, and it can either be an adhesive, some kind of foam, um, just any, whatever the product is, you apply it, you, you bond it, you throw it in an oven, and the oven is your catalyst. Mm -hmm. So your curative's already in there, and the heat just breaks it open and lets it start going. Uh, our polyester systems work a similar way, where it's this polyester resin and you have an amine component or a metal component in there and that's going to be what's going to react to the polyester. The polyester is a radical reaction so it reacts with itself. Mm -hmm. But what you need to do is you have a peroxide to it and the peroxide, uh, the amine will break the peroxide open and that's what forces the radical reaction of the polyester forward. Pro tip also, do not mix the metal uh, cobalt with the peroxide together on their own, they will make a uh, semi-explosion in your face. And I learned that one time. Also don't mix bleach and ammonia. Don't do that either. Um, also don't get amines in your eye, they're bad for you. Done a few stupid things in my uh, career. Luckily I still have both eyes. Uh, <laughs> And they are my best feature, so. <laughs> the, uh, no, is that what Caitlin says? I have no idea. <laughs> I've never asked. Are you, are you guys engaged? We are. Okay. We got engaged so, in December. Okay, very cool. I knew you guys got a house together. Can I proposed the day after we signed for the house. Aww. Was she surprised? She knew it was coming, but she didn't know when. And that was one where, because we had gone out and looked at rings, and then, um, I basically the next day ordered the ring that she picked out from my aunt who was, she works at the store who made it easier. But, so we did that and then I got the ring about a week before proposing and then I, I called around, found a couple of our friends uh, to come over and the, I was trying to be sneaky about it. Like I didn't want to tell the, even the friends what was happening. I was like, come on, see the house this day. We're gonna move our first stuff in. And eventually I had to tell the friends what was going on. They came out so they could get photos when it happened, but I went to the house first, brought the dog, you know, got him to see the house, and then she came over with just a load of stuff, and then 
got her in the house. I even snuck a nice blazer over with me. Aww. Couple, I had a couple bottles of sparkling wine in the house. Uh, flowers that I forgot to bring out because I'm a really good romantic. Uh, well, you might have been nervous just a tiny bit. So yeah, it was. Uh, it it worked well. Nothing ever goes as completely as planned, and uh, especially when you're trying to surprise someone, and they don't know that you're trying to surprise them with something. It's like, I need you to come. We need to go now. I'm working up. Like she doesn't. She didn't, didn't know I was planning something. She was like, No, we can wait. Not a big deal. Well, you're like surprise. Come on, let's do this. And then, well, we watch TV shows where someone's trying to plan a surprise, and, and I watch that and go, Man, I feel that now. <laughs> in a different way, because I'm normally not the one trying to plan a surprise. Not a big one. And if it is, it's like, okay, I can store this in my car and bring it out at the time. Not a, not a proposal that's a little bit bigger of a surprise. That's uh, kind of a once-in-a-lifetime surprise. So. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have any like wrap-up thoughts that you want to share? Or? No, I think I went through most of everything. <laughs> Uh, I mean, the, again, the nice thing with uh, when I worked with a smaller company was that you know my role was was very broad, um, so you get to kind of dip your toes into a lot of different places. Or as my boss says, you wear a lot of hats. Uh, and then you go to the bigger company, and yeah, things get a little tighter about what you can do and how you do it. But your role also gets more specified. Um, Usually, at smaller companies, there's more room to go vertical in your role, so you could like go up very quickly, whereas at bigger companies, going up each level takes a lot more time, effort, and energy as well. Yeah, we're um, and we're actually in the process currently where my role is going to be changing more from R&D to a technical service role, so kind of that middle person between your customers, your salespeople, and your lab. Mm -hmm. Because again, all these people speak a different language, so someone has to kind of be there as the translator, but also be able to help people physically with the stuff. Uh, this is a role I did have a little bit in the past where I got to go out to uh, Wisconsin and help build a mold for a bathtub, which was a lot of fun. It was. We did used... you later buy the bathtub to put in your house? No, oh. no, that bathtub would be too expensive. <laughs> the, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's and again, the epoxy stuff is such a simple technology, but a lot of it going from, you know, just you don't realize how much of this stuff is used in places. You know, your fiberglass. This was, we, we use a, a spray that we do, a polyester, you make a gel coat, and then we layer this fiberglass over this gel coat to about six or seven layers. And you have a time limit, because the stuff wants to cure. Mm -hmm. And the longer you go, the hotter it gets, because it starts to react and giving off energy. And then eventually, it's just, it becomes solid, and then the next day they literally take forklift basically to try to pull this thing off and I think they managed to use the part a little bit but I don't think they ended up actually buying the product from us full time this was a, a trial and the customer there they preferred the polyesters which smelled really bad but since the guy had been using polyester his whole career epoxy smelled bad to him because he was just used to the one mm -hmm. also if you like weird smells epoxy and polyurethane are a great place because they're really weird smells sometimes but aren't those like bad chemicals to inhale a lot of? Yeah, you don't want to huff them. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. I was going to go home and huff them, but now that you said something. Well, we, we actually have a co-op. We made a joke one day that he, you know, he was working on some glue products. He goes, yeah, I can finally go tell everyone that I get paid to sniff glue. 
it's like, I guess you're not wrong, because one of his tests actually involves, like, they would cure the glue in a jar. And there'd be some solvent in the jar to try to just extract everything. And what you do is you bake it for a certain period of time after that, and then you'd open the jar, and everyone would walk up, and you'd have to rate the smell from, like, a zero to a five. Now, you're not sticking your face in it. You're doing the, the way you chemists smell things, right? You're holding it kind of here and just wafting it. But most of the smells, they weren't that bad. Like, they couldn't be over a three rating. But it's a very subjective test. So you want everyone possible to come help. Mm -hmm. We did a similar test for one of our products because we added a defoaming additive to it mm -hmm. to for a urethane, just kind of keep it. We, want, we wanted a solid piece, not a urethane foam, which is the biggest market for urethane foams. But we didn't want it. <laughs> but the customer, when they trialed this product, they opened it and went, guys, we can't stand it. We're opening it and it smells like varnish. And we, we had a lot of this defoaming additive in it. And we knew that's where it came from because I've smelled that defoaming additive a lot. Um, and that was it was a high percentage. So what we did is I actually grabbed a bunch of people that weren't in the chemical department. So I grabbed our so sales staff. I grabbed customer service. I grabbed our marketing guy. I was like, hey, I, I need you guys to do something for me. So I lined up a bunch of just different concentrations of this and told me, and I actually first gave them the pure material and said, here, just mop it, get a good smell of it. Tell me when you can no longer smell it. And that's how we came up with our new concentration. Um, because once you use these chemicals too for a while, you're going to get numb to some of the smells. Which, so they're actually trying to make like artificial it. Um, noses and stuff to quantify these things objectively rather than subjectively. That is awesome. Um, I've heard a little bit about that research and it's really, really interesting. That's, I mean, that's a lot of the problems that you know, we'll just run into is the objectivity versus subject, subjective tests where, you know, a lot of them, you know, your viscosity, you know, how, how thick or thin is a liquid. That's, a, that's an objective test. I drop a spindle in there, this machine's calibrated, it measures it, I get a number. But one of our customers, they care about the memory of a system that we're working with. So you take this this polyurethane material, and if you fold it up, you roll it up into, you roll it up like a poster. Mm -hmm. And when their customer uses it, they want to be able to pull it off, and it folds right back up to its original form. Mm -hmm. um, now the product, the last product we sent them, did not have a very good memory to it, where you could even take just the corner, you bend it up, and it, it would fall kind of like this. Where they want it to, bam, hit the table. So that's been a, a problem for us too, because it's a very subjective test where, well, I think it hit the corner. I'm not seeing it have a problem, but I'm not the guy with 30 years experience. Well, I mean, hit the corner versus like, you know, you come back 30 minutes later and it's flat, it's not curling up. Yeah, like... yeah. and to me, it wouldn't be an issue, but I'm not the one out there using this product. Mm -hmm. and seeing that, oh wait, this is slowing me down by 30 minutes. And that's what they want. And you don't want to say the customer's always right, but if they're the ones paying you, you got to listen to them a little bit. Mm -hmm. So two questions left. All right. I know we both like weird outfits. We're totally like trying to outweird each other's outfits. I, I, like, I like the dress you got. Well, thank you. It was between this and something like straight out of the 60s, so now I... Uh... I had two other options in the car. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
Do you want to talk a little bit about your piece? Um, I mean, I, I just like it. It's Ron Swanson, one of my favorite uh, TV characters, which is funny because I don't feel I'm really anything like him. I just enjoy his character. Um, Nick Offerman's a fun guy. You, you have a lot more emotion. Than <laughs> you're very uh, expressive and raw. And... Yeah, but, you know, and he's got a lot of things on here I like. I enjoy whiskey. I drink too much coffee now. Don't really love it, but I drink it. Bacon. I don't know if that rose is supposed to be made of bacon, too. It's hard to tell. Is that a rose? Is that what that's supposed to be? I thought it was, but, you know, campfire, axes. I'm not much with a grill, but, you know, I like football. Burgers. Uh, these, <laughs> I, I, I like these shirts. They're, they're fun. They're, I just, I like to wear clothes that are just fun. You've consistently done it since college, I can't yeah. remember. Did you have it before college, or? No, but I also, before college, really couldn't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> Having a little bit of disposable income helps, because, yeah. I mean, even, you can find some good older stuff that uh, gets on the crazier side, too, but you have to look for it. Uh, a couple years ago, Caitlin got me a Hawaiian-style shirt. It's a Detroit Lions one. And this shirt, it must have been in the 60s or 70s when it was made. Just the design is all sorts of ridiculous. And when I when I, I wore it home one time to my parents, I, my, I was like, yeah, I keep out the second hand. And my dad's like, she better have. No one should pay money for that new. I was like, this is my favorite shirt. I've gone to a couple Lions games now and I wear it. And I actually have one uh, NFL Lions player that follows me on Twitter. And he wants, like, he was joking. He was asking people kind of what, where their Lions fandom came from. And I tweeted a photo of me wearing that outfit with my lion sport coat. And I'm like, yeah, I, I kind of was born into it. I went more into it after college once I started watching it a bit more. But he actually responded to me and now he follows me, which is awesome. That he wants to like meet up at some point, get a photo of, like, he, he interacts with all his fans. Uh, Tyrell Crosby, you're awesome. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know, I like wearing the fun clothes, but now, again, now that I can afford some of them, and mm -hmm. I'm not going broke buying them. Because <laughs> a lot of them, they get expensive, too, because now there's a real market for it. People, A lot of people are wearing crazy clothes now. Bright colors, weird outfits, styles that don't make sense. Crocs. No comment about Crocs. I have a coworker that wears Crocs uh, most days on his way in. He has different shoes he wears in the office, but he'll wear Crocs like to the office. And I do judge him for it a little bit. <laughs> I mean, there's so many other footwear options. Yeah, but honestly, at the end of the day, I guess I don't think they're, I don't like how they look, but if you're comfortable in them, wear them. <laughs> I suppose that is true. Well, Mr. Matt Boucher, it was nice to catch up with you on Sarah and Tech. <laughs> it was great to catch up with you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Sarah in Tech. Feel free to email me at sarah at sarahintech.net or follow me on Instagram at sarahintech. Hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs>